Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. Welcome to episode number 197 of the podcast. And I tell you what, today is a little bit different. So this is not a traditional podcast interview that I would do, but it is with two superstars, James and Kirsty Greenshields. Now, James has been on as a guest, but with Kirsty, they are an absolutely beautiful couple. And together, their story is... It's something that I really think everybody needs to hear. And um, we recently did about, well, it was about two months ago now, um, a Healthy Minds Positive Vibe Summit. And uh, James and Kirsty both presented this Taking Resilience to the Next Level. And I was just sitting back and I'm like, the message around this is something that not only couples need to hear, but just everybody in general. Their, their individual stories and their connection as a relationship, as a family, is beautiful and I want you to experience that today. So it will be a little bit different. I will not be asking any questions, but it is a super powerful episode. Now, this has been taken from one of our uh, 80 plus uh, learning courses on the fitnessgamezone.com. So if you want to check this out, plus many more, we've got free memberships. You can go and check those out at fitnessgamezone.com and they are all on there. But as I said before, we had six sessions at the Healthy Minds Positive Vibes conference online and everybody is presented on the podcast as well. And I really love that, that you can uh, make connections through video, through audio, and then put together a package to really help people. But I I have not had James and Kirsty on together. So that is why today this is going to blow your mind. Different format, same amazing value. Episode number 197. Thanks, Dale. <laughs> You're a legend, brother. <laughs> awesome. So the, the, the topic of presentation is uh, uh, beyond resilience. And this might sound a little weird given the fact that you probably would agree uh, resilience is like the Western society's holy grail at the moment. Everyone's saying we need more resilience, et cetera, et cetera. So, also weird that we have a foundation called Resilient Leaders Foundation. That is very weird too, you know, could be called an oxymoron. Uh, but with the, the whole point about today is to, to take you through um, this aspect called resilience and go beyond it and talk about what is beyond it because correct me if I'm wrong it's a fairly turbulent society out there at the moment lots yeah, of things are happening probably a good word <laughs> uncertainty is high on the Richter scale so we want to help people understand how to come to a place where they see certainty through chaos and what do I mean by that my life journey has taught me one thing if I initially look at a situation, it might look quite simple. But when I get down to it and when I really dig in, because that's what I like doing, digging in, I actually find the complexity of it. But when I immerse myself in it, when I surrender to the complexity, all of a sudden I come out on the other side and I see simplicity through the complexity. So we want to talk you through that. But let's just talk about resilience for a moment. I mean, if we go to the Cambridge def uh, Dictionary definition, as you'll see now on the slide, You'll see, firstly, it's an ability to do something or a capacity to do something, to be happy, successful, etc. after something difficult has happened or return to a usual shape prior to something happening. Now, there's two big things that this definition therefore infers. The first is that you've got to return to a pre-incident status, a pre-incident health status, situation, mindset, etc. What this therefore does is infers that the wound is something we must remove. It is separate to us and it's of a negative consequence mm. because we want, to, we want to evict it from our life. It implies that there is something wrong when we're experiencing something that we don't like, yeah. for instance. So um, it implies that any sense of dis-ease means that there is something wrong and therefore if there's dis-ease and something wrong, we can't be happy and successful. So 
the other thing is that resilience is implying that in order to be resilient, we have to be happy and successful. Now, what, what does that actually mean? Because there's a definition out there in society of successful, but what if the, my definition of successful doesn't necessarily match what, they've, what, what society has told me that I need to be to be successful and happy? There was a celebrity, I won't mention his name, but the celebrity took his own life a couple of years ago. Now, the media were, went into lamenting about it and they talked about everything that he'd achieved in his life. And according to our societal aspirations or definitions of success, he was an incredibly successful person with a family, a wife, loving children, um, all the sporting accolades, the business accolades, and yet he took his own life. And just goes to show the work that we do with so many people is demonstrating this this need for a recalibration of success. But the other thing that this, um, the, the or just to close off from that wound point, we're going to talk to you also about what the wound actually is because of our mindset and looking towards it will depend on whether or not we see where the medicine is. Uh, in other words, we understand how to heal. Healing, remember, when your bone heals, the actual place where the cells have realigned and come together is stronger than the other parts of the bone. Your skin as well, the scar areas, scar tissue is actually stronger than the surrounding skin. And what nature's demonstrating is when something is wounded and then heals, it actually becomes stronger. Hence what uh, a lot of people would refer to as post-traumatic growth. A psychiatric terminology, which is not necessarily talked about too much, but um, we're fairly versed in that from a personal standpoint. The other thing before moving on from resilience is resilience infers I have to have an adversary. It infers I must bounce back from something. So I must have something to bounce back from. It's, it infers that I must return to, to shape after being bent by something. In other words, I must have an adversary. I must have a fight. Now, a fight and adversary all come because of a mindset. How many times have we actually seen someone... Uh, initially, we get they get aggravated by what someone's done, only to find out that person was actually just trying to help. And I've seen that in many different ways, including in a war zone, uh, when that actually happened. That interpretation is a big factor. If you take that interpretation to another level, the the what it's in, what we're implying is that if there's an adversary, then the world is out to get me. So it means that the world is against me. And therefore, I'm going to continually need to fight. I'm going to continually need to prove myself. I'm going to be attacked. Um, all of those things that we've all heard before, the implication um, is with this current definition of resilience implies all of those things. So the question, I suppose, is going beyond resilience, what does it look like? What is it? Well, the process of going on beyond resilience is called transcending the fight. And transcending the fight very much comes down to how you engage the world, how you view it, your own worldview. But second to that, well, if that's how I transcend it, what does transcending it look like? It's coming to a place of harmony. Now, in our, uh, for Resilient Leaders Foundation, one of our maxims is every single situation on the earth, every problem on a global level can be solved at a community level within a global context because communities are different. Communities are organic. They're vibrant. And we've also got a global situation. So solving them within a community uh, situation but providing that network of, of global um, interaction will allow things to harmonise. Harmony is not all roses, though. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to remember, like, nature is a, is a beautiful example. In time, elements of nature die only to be given birth to something else. It's like, you know, part of it, when you're transitioning career, one of your careers or parts of your life has to be put to bed for the space to be created for the next element of your life, for the next way in which you can professionally place yourself out into the world. But without you putting that one to bed, then you can't grow from or grow into that next phase of your life. I always look, like to look at it from the perspective of this human body. So when I started learning naturopathy, I became aware of the concept of um, homeostasis, which means that our body is constantly 
working to balance itself. These bodies that we that these humans came into are amazing things. And the process of balance and homeostasis or harmony is constant correction. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong in the body. The body is always working to balance and stabilize itself. Even if it seems like something is wrong, resulting in disease, our body is still doing what it needs to do to achieve balance. So what does that mean? It means that if we can look at everything the way that, including our body, looking at it, that it's always there, it's always trying to achieve balance, whether it looks like it's growing or if it's dying, we can see, we can, we can choose to see how we can help this process. So if it's a natural process of death in our body, for instance, um, our cells renew themselves every seven years. So we basically have a new body every seven years. But if there is a process of death in our body, and the best example of this is um, a woman, a woman's cycle, as we go through our menstrual cycles, there's a natural process of death every month. We're shedding what no longer serves us in our body. So we can do the best we can to support that process. If we have cramps, we need to stop and rest rather than taking something to taking a pill to suppress that process. We allow that process to happen and we make it happen with the greatest ease possible so that we can contribute to harmony in our body. Another one would be adverse mental conditions, uh, i.e. depression or trauma. Uh, Taking what you've just said to the next level and, and bringing it into this uh, su subject, no one is broken. And it's really interesting, this whole talk about stigma, about adverse mental conditions, post-traumatic stress and depression. We need to get rid of stigma. And they'll say that. And then the next statement they say is, you've got to understand they're just broken. Now, if a person has... We've been going on about this for about four years. Yeah, yeah, possibly. <laughs> uh, but if a person has been told they're broken, how do you think they feel? You know, it's, it's not the best thing to be called broken. you're broken. Yeah, exactly. I feel broken. <laughs> and so they've got to be fixed. And if I've got to be fixed, it means I have to look outside me for that fixing to occur. So in other words, I disempower myself on the journey home. Yeah. Now, First Nation people around the world have been saying adverse mental conditions are simply a spiritual awakening waiting to happen. It's a very interesting way to view it. But if you then take it resilience and what we've been talking about resilience, they'll actually see as this fracture of the soul or, or this disruption is out of balance which is brought on by an adverse mental condition they'll see it as an opportunity to take yourself to the next level in your connection to everything around you so that so you can just see how that's a harmonizing worldview or or individuals view on what's going on for themselves as opposed to going to the diagnostic statistics manual volume 12 sorry volume 5 released in 2012 which then will go through a symptomatic uh, expose on what your symptoms are you're displaying for a certain condition. Again, that's a symptom-based acknowledgement of which a lot of the people we work with will tell you, I've got a few of them and a few of them, but that's not quite right. So this whole process is that a person is out of balance. And if you've, if you've ever suffered from trauma or depression or gone right into that isolative, um, disassociative feeling, you'll know that that at times it can be really safe, but at times it can feel like you're trying to do a pirouette like a ballerina on a big toe and you're trying to hold yourself together and it can be completely exhausting. So, and that's, you've just gone visual on me. Yeah, I was just thinking about everyone else going visual. Sorry about that. Yeah. You but, have actually done that when you've done this presentation. I have. That's all right. Of, it's kind of you can move past me doing ballerina stuff. <laughs> now everyone's traumatized. <laughs> Let's continue. <laughs> what we, what, so what we want to do today is we want to, we want to help you um, with the basics of moving beyond resilience and into harmony by using, um, we want to share a little bit of our story and how we did it, um, sometimes by accident and often um, quite consciously, uh, and also just come, to, come back to the basics because uh, I'm sure you'll agree that right now out there, there's a lot of confusion, um, and if we and it can get feel really, really frustrating and exhausting at times. And if we can just come into our own centre and take into account these particular things that we want to talk to you about, it can provide you with a greater sense of balance within yourself. 
So what we want to give you is a roadmap, but an experienced one, a one in which you know, we've lived and we've helped people, many, many people live. And we're not saying that our roadmap is right for you. We're just sharing our experience because it's worked for us and, uh, and, we, and what we, should, we know that it's worked because we've experienced it and we have encountered um, all of the bumps along the way. <laughs> In our last workshop, which we finished up last week, a, a gorgeous lady turned to us and said, how do you know what you're teaching is correct? And it's, a, it's such a beautiful question. And the first point that we always say in any workshop, and I'd love you to remember today, is don't believe a single word to be true that anyone says unless it resonates in your own heart. Now, those words came from a dude called Siddhartha Gautama, who is probably the best psychologist ever to walk the face of the planet two and a half thousand years ago under the name of what we would refer to now as Lord Buddha. And if he's saying that to what he was teaching, it's been, a, it's been a mantra that we've utilised in all our teachings. But to come back to her question, the, the bridge between knowledge and wisdom, in our humble opinion, is what we would refer to as experiential learning. In other words, I must experience it. And then through that learning, I develop an integrative understanding. You yourself know when, when you've been told about something, until you get out and do it, quite regularly there's questions. It's like coming on to this webinar today. Until I'd done it, I had a few questions about how the slides would go and everything. But now I feel experienced in being able to click through and everything, and I'm more comfortable with myself about it. And that's the way generally things roll. So the, the big call to action for you right up front is if you just listen to this today and you don't self-reflect about how it is for you and what we're saying and some of the tools and techniques we'll give you, just stay on the recording, what use is it? But if you actually take them and give them a go, give it a bit of a practice and see if they work for you, then if they don't work for you, then have a look at the next tool and find out what actually is for you, what works for you, etc. So that's our big call. Change always comes with action. Yeah. Know? And uh, it's, it's one of our mantras is intention plus action equals outcome. So we can have the, the, the most beautiful intentions in the world, but if, we, if our actions are directly polar opposite to those, we won't achieve the, the outcome that we actually desire. So uh, we want to help you have ways to be able to achieve your intention and come into, come into greater harmony, which means alignment with your life. Now, a lot of the time in the world, correct me if I'm wrong, we're said to be fairly insignificant. And if you look at the fact that our worldview generally is a scientific worldview on based on reductionist or materialistic views, then you can actually follow that slide quite well. And the fact that we're one person amongst 100 billion galaxies, so therefore we are enormously insignificant. The, we would like to also contend that the opposite is true, but let's go on a journey to find out about that. And I suppose the best way to have a look at transcending the fight or going beyond resilience... Because actually that's true. It is. It's dead true. Mm. Yeah. And with every truth, there is a half-truth. And with every half-truth, <laughs> there is a truth. But the thing is, let's, let's take them on this journey to have a bit of a practical experience about it. So Kirsten and I have been together for 20 years. Initially, we joined the... Uh, sorry. Only 21. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Giddy up. Do you know what anniversary that is? The anniversary, 21st anniversary, surely it has to be some gift. No idea. No idea. So, but the point is, what is my point? <laughs> that we came together 21 <laughs> years ago and uh, that we've been together and I've given Kirst every single reason to leave me and Kirsty given me a damn few as well. Um, but we and, I, and I, you know, I almost have several times because I had a tendency to want to run away. You had a tendency to want yeah. to run away? Yeah. Kirsty was married by 21, divorced by 24. And luckily that wasn't to me. Uh, <laughs> I came along then afterwards. We're, and we are both in the military. Kirsty was an, a military intelligence officer and I was a young Armoured Corps guy charging around at the front end, uh, being a, a, an officer leading um, tanks around. So uh, Kirsty learned your lessons from the military in nine years? Nine. And then became a naturopath. <laughs> now, I, when she be, wanted to become a naturopath, I didn't even know how to spell it, no, nor actually know what it was. So, you know, you've been on a real journey through understanding the things about you know, what the military intelligence taught you about questioning and understanding, you know, the different elements of what's going on about reality and the mm -hmm. construction of reality. But then to take that and also bring the natural sciences together, so therefore to bring that inside is, is quite, a, quite a blessed union. Yeah, an amazing one because I, um, 
by Nicole Obras. Not sure what Nicole Obras means, Kristen. Probably for the, the wedding anniversary, guys, your 21st. Oh. <laughs> Boom! Where's my notepad? Thank you. Good job. Thank you, Kristen. You said we're learning stuff today. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, I've completely lost my train of thought now. Yes, I had a really analy- I had a really analytical mind, and um, and the yeah, she's just said that's the twenty first. Um, thanks, Christy. Um, the so my mind was very very active, and uh, and when I was at school, I hated science. Like I didn't do science. I did English and history and all of the arts because that suited me much more. And then the military really taught me how to hone this ability to question. And um, not necessarily to question in the way I do these days, but just to ask really, really good questions. And so when I started um, studying naturopathy and then working with people, I was able to see patterns really quickly by asking questions and continuing to ask questions. And And I've taken that into my life in so many ways because asking questions helps us get clarity. And so if I am not feeling clear about anything, I will continue to ask questions until I do feel clear. And what that's done is it's helped me to move into my heart because if I ask question, question, question and get that sense of clarity, I will get to a point where I know, I feel it in my body and I know this is actually true for me and this is what's real. And in uh, the eyes of our 14-year-old daughter, um, Abby, when we were discussing your qualifications at talking about poo, um, we <laughs> talked about the fact that you had to analyse 50 different se- segments of it to get your qualifications, which Abby and I walked out of the kitchen in disgust. How- our daughters are still not very comfortable with me asking about their poo. No. no. <laughs> anyway. So I, on the other hand... Terry took... has said that's useful, but I don't think that Terry's talking about poo. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, on the other hand, took 17 years. I was an Army officer for 17 years. I had the honour of deploying to East Timor, uh, to the Solomon Islands initially. But I suppose my biggest honour was leading over 100 soldiers into southern Iraq in 2006 and seven in what's called a combat team commander position. Uh, had an amazing tour for about seven and a half months, learned an incredible amount about me um, and how to lead soldiers, um, particularly some of the, the finest people and individuals. That's, uh, that's my what's called combat team, Combat Team Eagle. I'm front and centre there, and that's in front of the ziggurat of Ur. And that's a six and a half thousand year old temple to the moon god in Mesopotamia or southern Iraq. Now, not too long before that, incident, sorry, this um, this photo was taken. We were out conducting a large-scale mission and the first vehicle of our convoy got hit by what's called a roadside bomb. Now, this picture was taken by an unmanned aerial um, vehicle and I'm not too sure if you can all see my cursor, but right in the centre of the screen is the actual vehicle. If you follow the trail of dust back, you'll see that's where the bomb went off the crater and this is the black cloud starting to come up that's a mushroom cloud starting to form. Now, I was two kilometres away from that vehicle when the bomb went off and I felt the percussion, and that, that actual cloud ended up being over a kilometre high. Now, less than 10 minutes later, my 14.1-tonne armoured vehicle got hit by an even bigger bomb, and that's it right there. I was chest high out of the vehicle at the time. You can't actually see me. I'm at the bottom of the vehicle. But you can see by the bent armour up around the top thing called the turret and the fact it's got no wheel, that the vehicle um, wasn't actually in too good a shape. Matter of fact, it had to be towed out. The hole that the bomb left was three metres deep and I received shrapnel wounds to the head and to the arm. That day taught me an incredible amount about life uh, and taught me an incredible amount about things. But we were in that incident site for over 10 hours before we were able to fight our way out of it and get home um, and that was actually on the eve of Anzac Day in 2007. We didn't complete that mission until 12.30am on Anzac Day morning before we got up for the Anzac Day service. But you could be, you could be probably um, forgiven for thinking that would be my worst day in Iraq. It wasn't. My worst day in Iraq was two and a half months into my tour when I woke up for the first time having a bit of a break but my stomach was in a knot. It was tied in two. And I was going through an incredible anxiety attack. And it was brought on by the fact that I'd woken up seeing Kirsty and my relationship 
through Kirsty's eyes. And I was taken back to the kitchen uh, two nights before I deployed where Kirsty and I had been in an argument and I'd said I wanted to go out to have a drink with a bloke and Kirsty said, can you just stay here and put your daughter to bed who was 10 months old and just have a nice dinner with me? And I said, don't try and throw the guilt trip on me. And she slapped me straight across the face. So when I deployed for Iraq, Kirsty and I were not friends. We would refer to ourselves as emotionally caged beings cohabitating. Now, we'd grown that way together for a number of reasons. But, but two and a half months into my tour, I felt gutted inside because I thought I'd been loyal. I, you know, I grew up on a, a farm and farming community and loyal was, loyalty was pivotal to me. I didn't realise what was going on at a deeper level. And that was, I had a number of roles in life. One as an army officer and, a, and the another as a husband and father. And unfortunately, what I'd done is given all to the army instead of balancing it out and uh, making sure that the trust bucket was filled up with my family as well. Now, there was a number of things going on for me at that time that I'll cover in a minute. But when I returned from Iraq, I developed what's referred to as post-traumatic stress disorder. So if my family hadn't gone through enough when I was overseas, not knowing if I'd come home, when I am home, they're walking around on eggshells for 12 months. I became intensely, or I behaved in an intensely angry way. I was actually very scared underneath, but didn't know how to express that or talk about it because I really thought there were four emotions, fired up, pissed off, shattered and numb. Uh, and I became more and more inside myself, internalising everything. Kirsty and I talked, but I didn't know how to communicate. And so I buried myself at work, which I was doing exceptionally well at. And the military thought so much of me, they put me on a promotion course for the next rank of Lieutenant Colonel and was setting my whole career up. They didn't have a single idea what was going on inside. Until one night, I couldn't even bath our eldest daughter, Abby, without splintering. And that night is the third best night of my life. It's the night I woke up and realised I could take bullets, I could take bombs, I couldn't even bath my daughter. So who was I? I wasn't a husband, I wasn't a father, I wasn't even been a man. And that night's ownership within myself set up the rest of our relationship. Because it was 18 short months later, and I say 18 short months because many people don't recover from post-traumatic stress, that I've gone through the whole journey of post-traumatic stress and depression and wanting to take my own life, getting to the point where after 18 months, I started to have joy back in my life and I started to see the, the blessings of the whole thing and realise I needed to be hit by a roadside bomb to wake up to my priorities in life, of which one of the biggest ones is sitting here and two of the others are walking around the house. So my family have been, I've reunited with my family and I've come completely home from a war zone, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I know who I am now and I am so much stronger because of it and I live my life accordingly. So when James came home, there we weren't friends before he left as evidenced by me slapping him. The first, time, first and last time I'd ever hit him was in that kitchen um, a couple of nights before he left for Iraq uh, because I had got myself into such a state that I was the only way. It was like... You, you might have felt it before. It's like a volcano that's boiling inside of you and then all of a sudden the top just pops off and the rage explodes. And that was me that night. When he came home, because um, I had said before that I had a tendency to run uh, and, and, and I did, I had a tendency to run away from difficult situations. The thing was, in this case, I didn't have to run because he left so I did it for you. <laughs> he did it for me and he, he left so I didn't have to run. What I did was I decided that it was me and my girl and we needed what we needed to do was get through this world together. And so that's what I did. I allowed myself to I allowed myself to really go inside and reflect on how I'd contributed to what was going on in our relationship. So when James came home, I was in a place where I understood that I had also contributed to what had gone on between us. And that was a key in our ability to heal. At no point did I say, this is your problem and you need to fix it. I said, 
this is for us to sort out. And I helped him to be able to see it. The thing was, for a long time, he didn't want to see it. And for me, in the lead up, you know, from the time that I left the military, we would have arguments about what was happening in the Middle East because I didn't believe that what was going on was actually true and um, and what the media was telling us was the truth. But James had to stay in his dogmatic beliefs because he was still serving and it was important to him. He didn't want to challenge why he believed he was doing what he was doing. And so what that was doing for me was confirming uh, confirming this deep-seated belief, firstly, that I'm not important, and secondly, I'm not heard and I'm not understood. So constantly in our relationship, this would go on for me. And when I allowed myself to heal, I realised that this was not that I didn't want this to be the truth for me anymore. So instead of him coming home and me beating my, my head up against a brick wall, I offered solutions and I offered suggestions and I allowed him to make his own choices. And at the same time, I continued to live my life and focus on what was most important to me, which was our daughter and the second one on the way. Um, funnily enough, not long after James got home, uh, we conceived our second daughter and she was born exactly 12 months to the day that James was hit by a bomb. So it's another reason why the, um, why the whole situation was such a gift for us. There are so many gifts in it. So we understand that it's an nth degree example. Extreme example. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the same time, I'm sure that you you would have you would have experienced similar beliefs in yourself, similar decisions that you'd made about yourself that impact on the way that you relate um, to other people. Now, for me, I mean, the core beliefs that I had was I didn't know how to be a dad, and I was scared. Yeah. So I could run to work because I was really good at that, but because of my self-esteem, even though I looked to the outside world as a really confident guy and a really capable guy. That self-esteem and little child inside that I hadn't healed, it was going to me, do you have what it takes to lead soldiers in a, in a war zone, in combat, and bring them home? And that responsibility is on your shoulders. Can you actually do that? Mm. And so what I'd do is I'd run to work and I would bury myself in work. Instead of coming home at 5 o'clock and reading Thomas the Tank Engine, I'd be in the office reading Military Doctrine. I'd give you the big tip. One's a fairy tale and it's not Thomas. So the... <laughs> The, the, the other thing that went on with me with, um, with trauma was this feeling of powerlessness, this incredibly deep feeling of powerlessness mm. and, and this feeling that, you know, I should be having things happen for me because this happened to me. Mm. And you were I, the victim. I was the victim and I had to shift that mindset because what I realised in the end when I started to come into post-traumatic growth was no one healed me. I healed myself, but I had incredible support. And that support only came when I put my hand up and actually asked for it. Mm. And sometimes you didn't give it to me in the way that I wanted it <laughs> or expected it. But anyway, you know, I still was able to shift the way I was seeing what was happening for me, around me and for me to be able to pick that up, that mantle up and run with it. The biggest one for me was that I would be abandoned. So um, decisions I'd made throughout my life brought me to this conclusion that um, I'll always be abandoned by the masculine in my life. And um, whether it's, you know, abandoned physically or abandoned emotionally, it didn't really matter to me, I would be abandoned. And so when James left me, I had every, I, there was every chance that I could go into that again because he left and he was abandoning me. And when the, the day I said goodbye to him, I, I ran as fast as I could down the steps of the airport because I didn't want to, didn't want to see his face. And so what I, when, when we started this journey of recovery uh, and I started to learn about how I co-create my reality, I asked the question, so if I co-create my reality, what was the purpose of me creating my husband being hit by a bomb? And what I discovered throughout that process, which was essentially a four-year process of self-reflection, what I discovered through that was that I changed my belief that I would be abandoned by the masculine. 
And to me, that was massive because within me, I am 50% masculine. So that's all of my ability to direct, to direct myself, to create my own vision um, and move in the direction of my dreams. And all of, those, um, all of those parts of my own internal masculine that are associated with the external masculine, I realised that I was no longer abandoned by that. So that was a huge gift for me. Which we'll talk about in personal responsibility. Just quickly, here's a photo um, of me just before I left Iraq. And you can see the eyes. I mean, the eyes demonstrate a hollow man. Um, and interestingly enough, when I came back, Kirsty put me on two courses of detoxification with your nat naturopathic um, uh, tinctures, etc. And none of it worked because of a subconscious, at a subconscious level, I was choosing to go even further down. So let's just uh, have a look at how the three, three key things about transcending the fight, the three key things. There are a number of aspects of this. That? That's just a cute photo. It's just a cute photo yeah. I wanted to throw in there. There's That's like a, about three, two or three years ago now. Isn't it, it is. Like three years ago. So just as a segue, uh, Abby um, woke up screaming uh, 12,000 kilometres away, the incident I was hit by the roadside bomb. And as Kirsty mentioned, Penny uh, came into the world 12 months to the day. Abby knows she's the one who helped me learn my lesson. And uh, she didn't want a general, she just wanted a dad. She helped me understand the power of presence um, and also purpose. And Penny's come into the world as an acknowledgement by great spirit, the universe or whatever's out there as having learned that lesson. And then she's come to teach me a shed tid more. But anyway, we won't go there. Yeah. Our, our entire story, including my backstory, is included in a book that I wrote in 2000, published in 2013 called Women, Money and Intimacy. If you really want to get into, um, if you really want to know the depth of our story and the emotion that, um, that we've experienced throughout our life, um, then you can, you can go into that book. What I did in that book also was ask, it's, I almost created it like a workbook and um, offer you questions and, and suggestions. You can get on Amazon. You can also get it on resilientleadersfoundation.org. Um, I think you can just get the PDF version on Resilient Leaders Foundation for a few bucks. So Awesome. So let's talk about the three major things, being personal responsibility, the control of three things and owning our emotions. Now, now, yes, there is a number of other aspects to it. Uh, I run a, a whole four-day workshop for men out in the bush called Transcending the Fight. But if we were to break down some very simple things that you can take away yourself to get a maximum amount of impact um, from their application, their personal application, then it would be these three things. So these, th these three things are the basics of our Young Warrior program as well. So when we take uh, 11 to 16-year-olds into the bush, we base our program on these three things because they're not necessarily what they've been taught at school, uh, and, uh, but they get, they get them so quickly, don't yeah, they? Yeah, hugely. So the young people are amazing. So if we look at our personal responsibility, Kirsty's already alluded to the fact that we create our own reality. And we already have heard this many times. I mean, in the Christian um, mystic tradition, then you, you reap what you sow. In the Buddhist um, mystic tradition, you have uh, the law of karma. We, we already know the energy we put out is the energy get, you get back. If you're negative to a person, you generally will get negative negativity back. If not from that person, somewhere else in the day. If you turn up at work, in a negative attitude, it takes quite a bit to shift you. And if you stay in that negative attitude, good luck for the rest of the day because because things will not necessarily be that rosy for you. So we actually already, we sort of know this. The other aspect to it is that when a person looks at a situation, they're creating their own reality. Two people can look at exactly the same situation and walk away with completely different aspects or viewpoints about what's actually going on. Just watch your, watch your footy game for a, a, another great example. And this is where we talk, well, we're not going to go into it a lot today, but this is where we talk about worldview. And yeah. having an understanding of our worldview is so important for being able to accept uh, where others are at. And, you know, when James and I were going in our healing journey, our worldviews were so different to one another. Um, and so that ability to be able to see the other person's worldview, you know, maybe get into an argument about it um, and then come to a place of acceptance is so valuable when we're dealing with others as well and this is really critical because you, know, you were talking about your lessons from my, my bomb and and you know how it brought you back within yourself you didn't run you really went inside 
the same. It, it, it built and like, it enabled me and I needed to, to fall apart completely to enable myself to rebuild myself the way I really was. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing scene in um, end, the Avengers Endgame when Thor is with his mother and she says, stop being, every, uh, stop being what people have wanted you to be and start being who you're meant to be. And eat a salad. And eat a salad, <laughs> fat Thor. But anyway, uh, it, was, it was a really pivotal moment in my life as well because that's what I realised I'd been doing. I'd been trying to live up to everyone else's expectations of me instead of understanding the big question, who am I? And that's what success is in the outside world. Success is living up to an expectation that society has placed upon us. <laughs> but society doesn't know who I am. Exactly. It's the, the only person who can answer that one most powerful question is me. Yeah. Even a facilitator or, or a guru can't answer that for you. They, they've got the question for you. And then it sits with you and that's the path that comes. So if you ever sit and meditate or reflect, ask this one question, who am I? Now, I've been asking that question for over 10 years now. And every time I ask it, I get a different different aspect of the same answer. But it's, it's a slightly tweaked or deeper. So it's a great journey to go on. But, oh, look, I love the way you look at each other and listen while you're talking. Thanks, oh, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. We've practised that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually rate her. She's pretty cool. Don't tell her, though. Um, the other thing is uh, a lesson. So many people come to the workshop. Look, this, uh, we run a, a 12-month Masters in Harmonic Leadership program for people. And we just had a workshop last week, and one of them was going through, this is my lesson, and it was all negative. And it was like, I was sitting there listening going, wow, you know, you're beating yourself up a bit there. And, and then we went through a bit, a bit of a discussion about how lessons will always be growth orientated. They'll be positive. If I've got a negative or a destructive lesson, it means I haven't actually got to the actual core wound. Sometimes it is important for us to um, just sit in that aspect of beating ourselves up, though, because when we sit in that aspect of beating ourselves up, we allow ourselves to feel the shame, the Mm. guilt, the sadness, the Mm. anger, the frustration, all of those um, emotions that come. And those emotions are necessary. The emotions are necessary for us to actually release and move through our body. Remember, dis-ease, emotions, stored emotions create dis-ease in our body, which creates us feeling crappy. So... That sometimes it's important to beat ourselves up and or be in that space. <laughs> Not important to be, but stay in that space of self-flagellation, because yeah. um, when we when we do that, we and we feel the emotion, then we feel the emotion and we move through the emotion, Mm. that's when we get the gift. But if we stay in that place of beating ourselves up, we're not going to get to the other side and that's not our gift. What we we create when we beat ourselves up is never, ever our gift. Our gift is always a positive for our life because our soul always has a positive intention. This comes back to the point about growth, where growth comes from. It, It comes from the depths. And so what I found is I needed to plow in really, really hard, like, at, at a point, the bomb. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> no argument. Um, the bomb literally just opened me up, and then I plummeted because the bomb shattered my worldview. My, my and it wasn't being hit by a bomb that I got post-traumatic stress. It was actually that I had 110 lives uh, on my shoulders, and the bomb just exacerbated everything because we worked out why we were there, and it wasn't what we were instructed when we were deployed. So I had this real moral wound about being over there, leading soldiers, been doing a job which might have meant they didn't get to come home to their families and that almost happened to me. So I had to move through that whole moral crisis and the shame and guilt associated with that for the decisions that I made. Yeah, and which took a number of years, didn't it, for you to move through the shame and the guilt of the decisions that you'd made of putting other people into, it wasn't necessarily yourself, but putting other people in that situation. Yeah, yeah. we can think that we've, that's a good point because we can think we've dealt with something and we've got a gift out of it and then all of a sudden something comes at us and we get those the feelings of shame and guilt again and this happened for James a number of times and it just is another layer for us to work through so that we, it doesn't mean that we hadn't got the lesson originally, it just means it's another layer for us to work through to come into deep into a deeper knowledge of who we truly are. Which, which I suppose one of the, the critical aspects of that journey that I came home was, was understanding this pivotal thing here Um, matter of fact when I got this it was like a brick that just dumped in my lap it was so heavy 
I control three things and only three things. And they are my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. I don't control Kirsty's thoughts, words, and deeds. Now I can influence them. And at times, Kirsty may let me influence them to a point where in her mind, she believes I'm controlling. Not anymore, actually, because we understand this. But previously, that was happening. And it used to happen for me a lot because I cared so much about what other people thought about me. I had a need for external validation for crying out loud. I had the medals and the rank and everything, didn't I? So I had a lot of external recognition, but there was no internal recognition. So understanding that I control my thoughts, my words, my deeds brought that home to me really, really pivotal. But in our relationship, because... Kirsty said to me, listen, I'm here and you're here. Now, I don't want to, I'm trying to get my hands in the screen. I don't, I don't want to come and join you because you're not in a nice place. And realistically, I'm not in a nice place either. This is after, you know, when I was going through post-traumatic stress and stuff. So why don't we focus on this goal up here? And we'll meet up here and we'll work towards it. And I said, I will continue to take a step every day, gorgeous. I cannot guarantee that it will be forward. Sometimes it was many steps backwards accidentally, but I always guaranteed I'd keep working at making that step. And what we started to realize is that a relationship is 50%, 50%. Like it's 50% me, 50% cursed. But Kirsty owns 100% of her 50%. And I, <laughs> and I own 100% of my 50%. But what we started to find out was that I would be looking at your 50% and I'd be going, no, no, you should be doing this. And I'd be trying to influence and control that unnecessarily. That's called projection. And when we stopped doing that, then all of a sudden I was able to like turn inwards and go, that's not mine. No, 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 that can't. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Look at, look at the plank in my eye, you know, <laughs> look at my own backyard. And, and when I was able to see that and go back to the control of those three things, we really started to get some traction in our relationship. Mm. So my thoughts, my words, and my deeds, it can be really confronting. Now, we've had questions over the years, and one of the pearls was how do I ba basically, how do I respect the unrespectable? Yes. And this person was saying that she was wanting this person to respect her, but she just, she just couldn't get this, this person to respect her. And what we're doing in that situation is we have a belief I have a belief that I'm not respected. And so I'm constantly looking for proof that I'm not respected. And so if I know that somebody is going to disrespect me, I'm going to seek out that situation and show myself, this is not necessarily happening consciously, I'm going to show myself that I'm not respected. And I'm going to go, see, see, I need to, I need to be respected. Well, what if I just stop interacting with that person in that way that's causing me to confirm that existing belief? And this is, it can be really challenging, especially if we're in relationship with, you know, old um, partners and we share children or things like that. But in every single situation, when we start to take control of this truth that we control three things, we gain greater peace and harmony within. And this is, with these three things, in our family, we run on three tenants, and actually, the Young Warrior runs on uh, Young Warrior Leadership Program runs on these three tenants as well: respect, reverence, and responsibility. Uh, and we we ask the young people: if if you're not respecting another person, who are you not respecting? Now, in a nanosecond, they'll answer us. I'll say myself. And then we flick the language because we're all about positive language. So, the next day, we'll be talking about: for me to respect myself, I must respect another person doesn't matter what that other person's done. That, that other person can do some really defiling stuff. But if you then engage it in a disrespectful way, then you, again, go back to the whole point about creating my own reality. Then I'm actually sowing and I will be reaping that disrespect straight back at me. And reverence is to realise that everyone's a human being. Everyone's sacred in some way, shape or form. And if we bring that sanctity back in our relationships in every way, shape or form, from, you know, from the bedroom to the boardroom, then things will really, really shift in uh, just in treating people with sovereignty. The other point to that with is respect. Res yes, with respect. <laughs> uh, and the point is only there's only one person who can do that. Mm. You know, do what Gandhi says. Be the change you want to see in the world. So that starts with me. And that's, that's a really, really big thing. Yeah. So the <laughs> number three. We should go on about it. For we could go on here for, yeah. Um, and 
the, this number three is like absolutely massive for me. This is like blew my socks off. Um, and I got so excited. I was like a frog so bouncing around, a frog in a sock. So when I started to understand the difference between emotional literacy and intimacy, I really started to make massive inroads into my healing. Um, and with trauma or depression, one of the underlying core wounds, which is so often not dealt with, is the suppressed emotion. You can't deal with it up here. This is why we don't use the term emotional intelligence, because think about it. it where does intelligence live? It's just naturally in the head, whereas actual emotional uh, emotional literacy and intimacy come from a heart space. We're not about letting go of your mind. We're actually about heart-mind union, and that's actually, you know, if you want to understand the mind, go to Lord Buddha. If you want to understand the heart, go to Christ. Our mind is actually really important. We're in a human body and we've been given this amazing gift of consciousness. So our mind is really important. But if it's if it's separate to the heart, then we're constantly out of our body. Yeah, exactly. So heart, mind and body. Just a quick definition for you so you understand what we're talking about. Emotional literacy is understanding you know, where the emotions live, how they work. Every emotion has a meaning. We, we use the analogy in our warrior training that everyone has this island that they're on and everyone needs to understand when the island's going to have like something come against it or anything like that. Well, our emotions are radars. Anger, beautiful emotion. It's all about change. You're getting an uplifting burst of energy including from adrenaline because the, the way you're looking at the world isn't matching up to the way you want it to. In other words, your expectations aren't being met or your personal boundaries are going to be violated. Shame, an amazing one. It's a social emotion. It's telling you stop, stop, stop. Do not pass go because if you do, you'll violate every moral code you've got. Guilt, a brilliant one. Hold up a bit, champ. Have a look at the collateral damage you've just done. What are you going to do to sort it out and get back on track? All these emotions have so much of a meaning for us. If we're not understand, if I don't speak Spanish, there's no way I can converse in Spanish. If you don't speak emotion, there's no way you can understand what emotion's coming for you. So every emotion you feel will have a, um, a message. This whole thing about anxiety, anxiety is not an emotion. It's actually a mixture of a cognitive and emotional sense. We all, it's a, a cognitive confusion with emotional undertones. Just stop. The first thing is if you get anxiety, just stop. Start breathing through your nose because you'll activate your, your parasympathetic nervous system or your rest and recovery system. And then just bring it on like a, a person. Just have a bit of a chat to it and see what it wants to say. You know? And then just sit yourself in it. Which brings us you, on to emotional. You can't focus on anything else. And um, if you guys have had the mindfulness talk, you probably heard this already, but you can't focus on anything else that's going on when you're focusing on your breath. Our breath is amazing. It works, the whole, it keeps us alive without us having to think about it. But when we actually place our attention on it and think about it, we can't think about anything else. You can try it later if you want to. <laughs> They're possibly trying it already. <laughs> Emotional intimacy is when you're at one with your emotion. You're feeling how you want to feel, when you want to feel it, to the degree and depth you actually want to feel it. You're understanding the message it's bringing so that you can actually interact with your environment. You're interacting, you're not being engaged by your environment. That's a huge difference. I'm interacting with my environment as opposed to being engaged by it. And there's, there's so much turbulence out there in the wide world at the moment. People are saying, you know, we've got um, this happening to us and then, you know, they're saying this is going to happen and when have we got... When's the restrictions coming off? There's a lot of uncertainty and people are feeling, I go back to the point about control. I was talking to a lady yesterday about control and she said, you know, I don't, I, I don't like control. And I said, okay, you don't like control because, because I don't like having my freedom taken away from me. But if you looked at her life and she actually was able to break down her life, she's got all these controlling tendencies. So she controls to actually get out of control. Our mind doesn't actually like to be out of control. Our no. mind likes to know what's coming next. But our heart knows that when I actually allow myself to sink into my breath, into the flow, I will be safe. Yeah. And so remember the opposite of control is trust. The more trust you have, the less control you need. The more control you need, the less trust you have. And that's a journey unto itself. Mm. So... Coming to a place of emotional intimacy, I go back to that point about we couldn't talk. I wanted to talk to you. We were talking, but I couldn't connect to you. It's because I, I couldn't express how I felt. I tried to, but I didn't even understand how I was feeling. Mm. So how could I make, make it like communicate to you? 
so many men come to me and say, I just can't communicate, or been told I can't communicate. I said, well, mate, I understand from what you just said that you believe you can't communicate. That means you can communicate really, really well because I understand what you're saying. <laughs> it's different if I don't know what to communicate. There's a massive distinction. You have the skills to communicate. You have the skill set available. Now it's getting to the bottom and understanding the emotions to be able to, to actually do that. So it's really, really pivotal. These three things, it's the um, coming back to them is, uh, is really massive. Um, the personal responsibility, the uh, owning of my three things, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, 50%, 50%, but I own 100% of mine and 100% of yours. You own 100% of yours. Mm -hmm. And owning our emotions is really, really key. Mm -hmm. Have a look at the distractions you've got going. This, these mobile phone thingies, they're brilliant. Technology is awesome. And it's not technology's fault. Facebook, it's not Facebook's fault. It's not Zuckerberg's fault. If you're having issues with Facebook, it's called this thing. You see that? That's an on-off button. Yep, that's the on button. That's the on-off button. You have control. I have, I'm ex-military for 17 years. In Iraq, I had five guns of varying calibers. No gun has killed anyone. Which goes to the point of triggers of signposts. If there's someone Good out point. there... If there's someone out there that is triggering you emotionally, if there's this person, there's a situation, there's an event that's triggering you emotionally, there's still something that has control over you and how you choose to respond. So when you allow yourself, when you allow yourself to come into this space of becoming emotionally intimate, ask yourself, what is the purpose of this for me? Because it's not about that person or that thing. And we and if I and if that thing has control over me, then I have to avoid it, and that's not powerful. So, what is the purpose of this for me? And explore that. You might not get it straight away, but it doesn't matter. The fact that you're asking the question means that you're calling back your power. The way I do it is, I look at that person, and I get really raw, and I say, "What don't don't I like about you?" And I'm I'm not bypassing it. I'm just nailing it as it is. I've been really blunt with myself. I don't like this. You're arrogant. You're conversational narcissist. It always has to be about you, blah, 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 blah. And then throw the mirror up. Where in my life do I exhibit those things? Where in life am I doing it? And then go through the healing journey of, you know, owning that, releasing the emotion and coming to a place of forgiveness. And you will transcend that person. The fight that that person is triggering within you, you will naturally transcend it. You can only do that when you own your emotions, which is why it is so powerful to become emotionally intimate. You better quickly have the notebook exercise for Chris. There, right. Good point. Right there. Right there. So five times, <laughs> this literally we paid over $120,000 of personal development to, to bring ourselves back to where we were. And we don't regret a single moment of it. Matter of fact, it was instrumental in my journey. But a $2 investment was probably my biggest one. <laughs> I might have been thinking that everything had to be big initially. But a $2 pocket notebook from any news agents, put it in your pocket with a pen five times a day, ask these questions. How am I feeling? And write it down. Then do I want to feel this way? If it's yes, epic. Just spend a moment and acknowledge the emotion. If no, then take a breath and go, how do I want to feel? It might simply be calm. Cool. Just bring to mind a person, situation or thing which allows you to feel calm. Again, breathe in through your nose and allow that calmness to come back to you and then continue on your day. Now, when I was, I did this in the military, do it for 21 days and I'll guarantee you, you'll shift the way that you communicate with your emotions. A great question to add powerful. to that, James, just for everybody, is the next question that I ask is what needs to happen, which is what you've kind of said, bringing to mind that somebody, but what needs to happen? And what needs to happen if I go, so-and-so needs to apologise to me? Okay, so I'm not being responsible here because I'm expecting that for me to feel happy, I need someone else to, to apologise to me. What needs to happen within me to create this feeling for myself yeah because remember as that slide says you're actually amazingly significant hugely enormously significant you are the only person like you in the world of over seven billion people there is only one of you every single person has a purpose for being on the planet otherwise you wouldn't be here. And good old Gandhi said it be the change you want to see in the world we 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 are we are not 
insignificant. We are the microcosm of the macrocosm, every single one of us. When we remember that, the way we treat ourselves is an indication of how we treat the earth, the universe, other people. It is, we are the microcosm. And our issue is not anything out there that they're telling us. Our issue is connection. When we connect in here, we're able to connect out there. Trust you got something out of it, Peoples. Dale, you're a legend. We love you. Thank you so much for having us on board. Oh, wow, I'm sitting back here. I nearly took a screenshot of every slide you had because I think it was so impactful. Your story, like everyone's just saying there, they're crying and everything like that. And um, I'm just so grateful that you were able to share that with everyone today. And hopefully um, people have taken so many things away from it. And I know I have. So I didn't get to do the big introduction or anything before. It was a little bit rushed. So, guys, thank you so much for you know, giving up your time and everything like that. Um, that was that was really incredible. And it, it's a really nice addition from everything else we've spoken about today and the rest of the talk. So, um, yeah, just the connection you two have together. Obviously, Kirsty, I've never had the opportunity to meet you, but I've, I haven't met James either, but I've spoken to you, James, and um, I can just see how amazing you two are together. It's such an inspiration. So thank you so much. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're and, welcome. And Deborah, so Deborah said, like, with you, as long as you bring some stone and wood, cloud catches. <laughs> <laughs>